my guest today on the Brandtune podcast is Sean Adams, who is an internationally recognized graphic designer and the chair of undergraduate and graduate graphic design at Art Center College of Design in California. He is the author of multiple best-selling books, including The Designer's Dictionary of Color and How Design Makes Us Think. Adams is an on-screen instructor for LinkedIn Learning and contributor to Design Observer. He is the only two-term national president of the American Institute of Graphic Arts, AGA, which is a hundred-year-old professional organization for design. In 2014, Adams was awarded the AGA Medal, which is the highest honor in the profession. Previously, Adams was a founding partner of Adams Morioc, a design agency. Sean, welcome to the Brandtune podcast. I'm delighted that you agreed to start this interview by delivering a 10-minute mini masterclass. I understand it's on how to succeed with identities without really trying. Yes, absolutely, Sharon. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be here, although I wish I could be there in person with you. It'd be <laughs> a far more fun trip. Um, but Yes, I actually thought I'd start off with um, just a really brief overview of identity design and and not only for us as designers, but for those of, of those of us that are working as clients to understand sort of the process and what works and what doesn't and why we sometimes make the choices that we do. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's less of a fuzzy, magical, mystical trip that we're on um, and something more realistic. Yeah, it would be lovely to demystify it. Yeah. So let me share my screen and... Um, oh, let me enable you to do that. Sorry. No problem. You're far ahead of me if you can figure out how to do it. <laughs> yeah, you should be able to share your screen now. Okay, perfect. So now, theoretically, we should have the correct slide, right? How to succeed yeah. with identities? Yeah. Good. Okay. Now, let me go through this briefly. And of course, you know, in 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 real life, this would take 14 weeks mm. at, a, at a, you know, normal course um, um, with us at Art Center. Um, we're going to pretend, as, as you'd mentioned, let's presume the research and strategy are all done, that we've done this part of it already. We're ready to start making form at this point. Yeah. So we've already looked at the brand as a whole. We've understood, like, all of the pieces come together. It's not just the identity that is enforcing and reinforcing the message. Um, we've looked at all of the points of contact so that we know that whatever we make is going to have to work in print or in a tiny pixel on social media, that we understand the, the, the issues that are involved with just the technical part of this. And we know who our, cult, our audience is. Um, you know, clients tend to love to say, my audience is everybody, which is a rather broad statement um, and tends to, you know, include people probably not of your audience so it's good to really know like who's my core audience and work out from there because then i know who i'm talking to and and, and how to communicate to them yeah we've also looked at the competition so we understand who is our direct competition and who's the primary and secondary and maybe in five years 
who's that going to be? And really what's making our brand unique. Um, now, one thing I always do with all of my clients is, is really make them button down several attributes so that it's not um, just this fuzzy, I think we're about X. Um, tell me, you know, boil us down. And sometimes this takes a good month of back and forth and back and forth because everyone starts off with, oh, our, our attribute is quality and excellence. Okay, who isn't? Could we please, you know, just like find something a little bit more specific? So once we've gotten there, we have something to work with. Um, I also go over my rules of identity design with my clients. Um, I find that they, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, this is, you need to be an expert to understand some of this stuff and you have to explain it to them. And one of the most important things that clients typically don't understand um, is that ident good logos identify. It's their job to identify. It's like your name. It's like, like your name is Shireen. It doesn't tell me anything about you. It just tells me who you are. Um, when you try to describe what they do, it leads to bad things. Um, you know, and, and that the logo isn't going to solve every problem. It has to be engaging. It should be memorable. A good logo will always pose a question. If you think about the Apple identity, it has that little bite out of it which just forces you to think a little bit. The more you think, the more it sticks in your head. Um, and it has to be neutral enough to you know, adapt to changes, which is the whole point of identifying. If IBM had started off with a picture of their little machine, their adding machine, they could never be what they are today. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it's good to have a, a sense of like, it's neutral, it can, it can do lots of different things. I then try to go through um, just some basics with them, as in like, well, there's there's really three kinds of identities, and and it's good to explore all of these. That you you know that, that there's not just one solution typically. So there's the word mark, which is the name, you know, put into um, 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 some sort of letter forms that are proprietary, um, a monogram like IBM, which is International Business Machines. Um, or symbol like the CBSI when CBS switched from radio to television and wanted to make sure people understood it's visual now you can see things. Um, you know, a word mark can encompass a lot, you know, uh, you know, the, the just the word mark Disney we, we have you know emotional responses to it. Um, and and it, it does a great job of being clearly understandable immediately, I know what that is. Um, the downside with a word mark is that it's maybe not as universal that you know this well disney will sort of work everywhere but you know if another another you know a less global brand might have trouble in korea or you know somewhere where the letter forms are completely different there's a monogram um nasa national aerospace space um association or, or whatever the long the long version of it um and monograms are great when you've got one of those uber long names that you just no one's going to remember. Um, and, you, you know, like international business machines, it's just not that fun. So, you know, the idea with NASA is it's a very quick, easy read. Um, the downside with monograms is that there are a lot of them and people tend to just like, well, just make monogram of my name sa well there's a lot of essays so it's a little hard to to own that and um take some time um and there's a symbol you know so there's a symbol like british rail it's like i understand that means something now you understand that's british rail and i understand it's british rail 
but without repeated exposure to that symbol, it may be unclear what it is. You know, it's great, it's universal, we all get it, but um, does it read to everybody? And that takes time, that takes a lot of effort to get someone to, to recognize it, just a pure symbol. The logo or the lockup is usually a word mark connected with that symbol. So the CBSI with the CBS Firmandito, which is their typeface, combine make the CBS logo. Um, or the Apple computer, you know, this is the old Apple logo, and they ran with this that word underneath that logo for a good 25 years. So mm -hmm. for 25 years, they're pounding that connection into us. Now it's gone far enough along that they can move the word and we still know what it means. Um, McDonald's just did the same thing. They just removed McDonald's from their um, golden arches. And now it's just the arches because they've got enough equity in that identity at this point um, to be able to pull that off. Now the process is, um, is the part that I really like to take my clients along. I don't, well, I don't like the idea of I'm working off on, by myself doing some magic thing, and then I reveal my wonder. Um, I want them to be part of this. It's collaborative. Um, they're going to know their business better than I ever will. Um, I can point out some things I might see from the outside, but it's their business. They know things intuitively I may not know, um, and it's good to you know incorporate that. Now, almost every project I've started with, someone has walked in with a with a really bad logo idea. Like they're just immediately like, hey, what if we did X? And you're like, how do I get around this? Um, now, one of the things that I find that clients do, and a lot of designers too, is they just jump immediately to what everyone else is doing. So showing them that really helps clarify the issue. So for example, this was a, a board that I made for um, um, a, a, an identity system for a library foundation. And you know, initially they were like, oh, well, we can have books or a tree. And I'm like, there's a lot of books and trees out there. Let's really look at that because if you wanna stand out, you're gonna have to actually maybe go away from what everyone else is doing. And that is the point is to be proprietary and stand out, not blend in um, in any way. And then one of my personal pet peeves are these logos with people. They drive me to madness. Um, they're like 50% of the people I work with are at some point saying, what if there's a logo of people like this? And like, why? Like, why? You know, and there's so many bad logos of these strange, you know, shadow people that are, are out there. And so again, I try to show them these are not logos. These are illustrations. These are really just cute drawings of something. And if you use people, you're opening yourself up to all kinds of misinterpretations. Um, you know, this always does the job of ending that story right there. Like when you show them, look, you make the one wrong choice here and you've really gone down a bad street um, without intending to. And, you know, typically they're like, oh my, I had no idea that it could go wrong so quickly. So, in exploring a word mark, and this is a very truncated version of what we do, um, I'll go through the process of looking at lots and lots of different typefaces. Um, you know, to be honest with you, it's not wildly scientific at this point. It's just I'm looking at form, um, which words fit, which letters fit together well. Is there anything that, that doesn't work and feels weird? And typography is pictures of words. So, what is this picture? 
What's, how does it make me feel? What's the tone? And I might go through hundreds of these and I might share that with the client too. And so someone's like, well, did you try something like this? Yes, it's right here, but what do you think? Um, and, and then I can narrow it down, you know, from, okay, I've decided I like this, this letter forms the best, but how can I make that proprietary? Because I find that, you know, if you, if you have a typeface or a logo that's just a typeface, someone will try to type it in on their own and it will be times roman and you're like that's not our logo that's you know just our name in times roman so getting in there and making some modifications in this instance the a has been modified and the r has been modified um and the ampersand so that they're it's not just a typeface any longer and then monograms you know i i may try now typically people that make monograms that are tortured typography they're they're just like please don't do this to me um if it doesn't fit together easily don't do it there's a reason why um and and again it's like how can i combine specific letter forms do they work do they not work is it going to look scary is it going to look you know friendly what what are the, the attributes that i'm trying to convey here and how can i put them together you know and in this instance i could look at it and say well, this is lovely, but I have no idea what it is. It's just too broad. I don't, you know, there's the, the, the brand name doesn't have enough equity in it. Um, and then developing a symbol or an icon. I always go back to the original attributes. These are the attributes we agreed upon, historic, personal, classic. These are the things this brand is about. So what are symbols that can represent these things? Like what are, what are some ways I might wanna talk about it? So, I'm going to develop a set of symbols based on that. It's historic. Does a quill pen work? Um, you know, it's about comfortable. Does this sort of princess and the pea identity kind of a concept work? Or it's um, personal. So the, the peacock kind of a flat, you know, what are the, the symbols that might have some resonance with this? Now, in this instance, um, with um, this brand meander, um, it kind of boiled down to this, this building structure. Um, because it was historic and and just you know I think it's always a good idea to work with a little bit of structure so this is the golden rectangle that I worked within when building the starting to refine the logo um, just to give it some form that that had some some meaning to it and from there you're refining you know at that point I'm taking all of my different icons or the ones that I like the best and combining them with the different typefaces that I like the best that seem to convey the best message and once again, sharing that with the client so that they see, oh, this typeface, with this icon works great. This one doesn't look so good. These don't pair as well. Now, in the instance of Meander, I went back to the real place that kept coming back over and over again. It's a historic um, in, why aren't we using the real place? And eventually, you know, it just became great. We can represent the, the, the form itself with a variation of the building. It's not an illustration of the building. It's the idea of the building, which is actually a Jeffersonian structure. So, you know, putting those things together worked great. Um, from there, it's fine tuning the identity itself so that there are reasons for the spacing. The proportion is magic. Proportion makes things fit together harmoniously. I look at the competition and their color systems and try to figure out how can we do something different so that I'm not copying every other in in the neighborhood um but let's meander you know stand out as being um 
cool color, build an entire visual system. So there's a logo, there's color palette, type of typefaces that are, are to be used, and sometimes images that might go along with it. And then I can apply it. Then it's a matter of like, okay, showing the client, this is how it's gonna work. This is, and this is often the thing that sort of sells the car. Like now you see this, this works. This can, I can fit it on a website. I can also put it on some soap if I have to, you know, that it, it can reduce down to that. Um, and it can still function, you know, as signage um, in, in any kind of a setting that it's broad enough to do that. So that's the process very, very quickly. Um, just to walk through and um, hopefully I got that in under 10 minutes. Great, thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, so a lot of uh, designers nowadays tend to just create a word mark, often it's a sans serif, I think that you call it, and no symbol at all. Um, so that a, a brand often doesn't have very much, just the color and a, and a font mm -hmm. um, by which to do lots of things, you know, on social media to try to look like itself and yeah. it hasn't got very much. I mean, when would you decide to create a symbol as well and give a brand some extra elements to use? That, it's such a good question. And, and it's so relevant today. If you'd asked me that 10 years ago, I would have said, well, they don't have to have a symbol. But now, if I am stuck in situations where I have 12 pixels to deal with, and it's a square space on Instagram, or, you know, any other kind of a social media platform, mm -hmm. I can't jam a word in there, right? So I'm going to need some sort of a symbol that can be a stand in, in mm -hmm. some way. Um, and, of course, the tricky part with symbols is building equity over time, mm -hmm. you know, that, that you can't just launch the Apple logo by itself, you've got to have sure. that combination. But I, I like this idea, um, especially now, of having detachable symbols and word marks. Mm -hmm. So that I have a very clear word mark that, that is proprietary. And then I have a symbol, but they can come apart. Mm -hmm. so I can use one by itself or the other. Um, it gives you a little bit more flexibility in this world where I might have to have something tiny on an iPhone or gigantic on the side of a building. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, often all these elements like <clears throat> colors, symbols, sounds, you know, are protectable um, mm -hmm. ultimately uh, as intellectual property. So, I mean, I believe that you shouldn't create things without knowing how you're going to be able to protect it. Um, Fantastic but point, yes. But often uh, designers are not trained at all in intellectual property and they tend to create and then leave it to the client to get to protect it. So mm -hmm. the two are quite divorced from each other, which can cause problems sometimes, you know. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I find that, um, I mean, I always work with an intellectual property attorney mm -hmm. to, um, to help first do a search. Like if I'm working on an identity, I, 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 I was like, can, I can't be alone responsible for tracking down something that may be infringing. I'd like to know yeah. whether there's a logo there or looks identical to that already. Mm -hmm. um, and, and one little trick, and, and you, you know, since you know, you're a solicitor, you know this already, but in my contracts, I make it very clear that the client has the final responsibility to, sure. to 
to determine any violations of infringements because I do not have the enormous resources yeah. that someone like Disney might have. To <clears throat> no, you shouldn't them. need to, but <clears throat> the point is more that there's an ownability question and then there's the availability. Mm -hmm. So obviously for availability, you need somebody to do the search, but you can also do some yourself, but you can put the onus on the client. But the ownability aspect is something maybe that I think designers would do well to learn IP to understand more about. Yeah. And I'm just Absolutely. wondering whether your college teaches IP to, as part of, presumably people take an option like brand identity. Mm -hmm. um, is it taught as part of that at all or not? I guess not, but. No, it is actually. It it's is? Um, yeah. as complicated as it is. And I would love to say, oh, IP law, it's simple. No, it's not. It's yeah. obviously like very complicated and subjective. Yeah. And um, no, in, in, in our branding courses, it's definitely part of it. Like we actually do have an IP attorney come in and do a lecture and talk about, you know, the issues involved. And then before they graduate, every student has to go through business 101. And in business 101, that's a, I think we spent a good four weeks on intellectual property issues. Oh, good. Um, hmm. Mostly, strangely enough, it's, it's actually the reverse. You would think that students are infringing left and right. Um, and of course, some, they do at times, they have no idea. But often they'll claim ownership of something that can't be claimed. Yeah. Like, oh, I have a blue square. I did it. It's mine. Yeah. yeah good luck with that. That's a lot. There, you can't forbid anyone from using blue squares for the rest of history, right? Yeah. So, um, so that becomes, they understand, oh, that's not actually a copyrightable form or, or you know, it's copyrighted. Yeah. That's yeah. not, I can't own that. It's yeah. too broad. Yeah. Actually, that, um, reminds me uh, in design you're you're looking for cues that are well known to mm -hmm. to symbolize something so if you're trying to explain wheat or cereal you mm -hmm. might well go for yellow to denote that right is that right but that actually means it's not going to be ownable um so there's a tension between what you're trying to do <clears throat> as a designer um <clears throat> and what you actually need to do to be able to have an ownable color, which mm -hmm. is not to use um, that yellow. So how do you navigate that? It's it's a it's it's one of those big problems as a designer that you have to to face. And there's there's times when it's simply undeniable. You cannot get around it. Mm -hmm. um, for example, I did an identity for a theater. Um, it was a Roy in the Disney Cal Arts Theater. The, the acronym was red capped. Well, I had to use red, you know, it sort of goes without saying, you're gonna have to use yeah. some shade of red. But at the same time, sometimes those rules need to be broken. Mm -hmm. So for example, Wells Fargo Bank is red and yellow. That's their, the, that's their, their um, brand colors. Before they did that, red was completely verboten in any financial institution. Mm -hmm. You could not use red, it meant you're in the red. So yeah. it was like everything had to be blue or green. Like that was it. And yeah. they rightly said, let's challenge that and own it. Mm -hmm. And they were able to. And it was turned out, well, that was sort of a silly rule. Um, 
but they they made they made that leap but of course there are those times when you're like it's it is what it is i can't you don't want you don't want an identity to ever feel forced you know mm -hmm. like it's been you're jamming some idea in there that won't work and in those cases i remind people of identities that are so simple they're almost not ownable mm -hmm. um hr block i think for example has a green square that's not ownable mm -hmm. the world it lives in is ownable yeah so what kind of images i use mm -hmm. what kind of form and shape and colors are part of the <laughs> system um, those start to actually tell a bigger story and, and, and can carry more ownership as a, as a whole. Yeah. Um, when do you think it's ever appropriate to completely redesign um, the visual identity, like this design you showed? Mm -hmm. um, when would it be appropriate for, say, a new designer coming along to decide actually I want to change everything the first thing that 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 I you know of course we tell our students to also um we have one class which is identity design and they've got to redesign it it's like you got to learn how to make a logo from scratch yeah. the next class in the series is actually strategy and 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 um research and in that the big part of it is how much equity exists in the mark they have mm. and is it good equity is it, is it, you know, Coca-Cola has, what, 120 years of equity in that identity, and it's worth something like $1.5 billion. Mm. So clearly changing the Coca logo, bad idea. Um, you know, you can change the world around it, but that's something that really can't be done. Whereas there are times when an organization has completely changed, and it's not the same structure, it's not the same goals. And it doesn't make the sense to maintain the same identity. Um, the thing I always go back to, though, is how much equity exists. Is it worth it? Um, I have a. I was working with a major corporation recently, and their identity was truly forgettable. Like I honestly could not remember it. Every time I, someone mentioned it, and they insisted everyone knows our logo. And I'm like, what is it? What? I'm a designer, and I can't remember it. Um, they see it every day so they assume well everybody sees it yeah. every day but in reality you know it sort of took like okay let's go ask some people and it was really like going out on the street and saying hey what's the logo for so and so and people were like i don't know what is that and they hear that three or four times they're like okay i got it we don't have any equity in our logo we've just mm -hmm. you know lost it so i think if there's um if there's a tonal shift that has to occur if something awful has happened and there definitely needs to be an adjustment that we acknowledge something awful happened and we are a different company um, than, than that has to occur. But in all of the big brand programs I've worked on, I've pretty much tried to re either resurrect the original logo, which had equity um, and was abandoned for some reason, mm -hmm. or find a way to, to make it more stable. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I think um, I, I've been on various branding courses and they talk a lot about differentiation and business strategy, um, but say absolutely nothing about what designers should actually do when mm -hmm. they're creating the designs. So you get incidents like the Tropicana redesign right. where they redesigned the packaging and got rid of all the sort of recognizable elements. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that comes from 
designers not being trained in actually that, you know, people have to recognize you still, that, you know, there's a value in just them remembering that, you know, you're yellow or that your font is is an italic rather than whatever and not changing it i mean all these very famous brands have all changed their logos like mm -hmm. Laurent, and they've all gone to this plain sans serif is it yeah believe me i've had some of my identities changed and i'm like why did they change it it was fine it had yeah. equity and in a couple of instances they actually went back they realized it just yeah. did not work and okay that was a failure let's go back to the original mm. um I I wish more designers spent more time actually thinking about the business goals and the 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 audience perception as opposed to can I make something neat? Yeah. Like can I make something really cool? And of course, as form makers, we love to do that. That's great, right? Um but unfortunately that's in some ways it's like going to the doctor and the doctor tells you, okay, um you know, God forbid you have cancer, right? Um, and you just keep saying, oh, no, 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 no. I'm just going to do nose job. That's all I need. That's forget, forget the rest. Well, the problem's systemic and probably bigger than just the logo. Yeah. And trying to make a groovy new logo is not going to solve the bigger problems. Understanding those and then saying, okay, here's the biggest problem. You have terrible customer service. How can we adjust that? And how can I communicate and, and that probably has nothing to do with the logo. It's probably has to do with like, well, what's the message we're putting out there and how do we change it? Yeah. And would you actually go to the customers, the target customers to see if they like the logo? I mean, with this design you showed, or do you just mm -hmm. show it to the client and if the client likes it, then that's, that's fine? Or how do you go about finalizing your choice? It's, it's, you know, a lot of that also depends on the size of the client. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in this instance, Meander is a small inn and hotel. And, yeah. you know, there's, you know, with them, it was very specific. They were the client. They, you know, they knew the brand. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, we, we did have like a little dinner where we sort of previewed it and just to get people's reactions. But certainly a larger identity. Um, I did the identity, the most recent one for Disney XD, which is a television channel. A network mm -hmm. and with that there was focus group testing for two months of bringing in groups of like 12 year old boys and asking them what do you think what do you think about this color system what do you think about that color system and getting their responses now in that instance i, I actually found that the person leading the focus groups had more sway than anyone in the room mm -hmm. and could push things in the direction that maybe were was not as um objective as it could have been um and you know but in the end the focus group did actually help um for more to reinforce to the client that is the right choice that is the response we're looking for yeah i i find it as a client of designers very difficult to be able to know why they've actually made the choices they've made um, mm -hmm. Uh, in my very first uh, visual identity, they gave me all those different fonts, like mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds, and I just liked one, and I said, oh, that one's good, and then they worked on that. 
Mm -hmm. do, do you, is it a matter of what the client's taste is or why why choose one rather than another font? Well, I mean, that's, that's why I really hammer on those attributes that before anything is made visually, before anyone does any sketching, before anyone tries anything, you work out what are those six or seven words that define us? What do they, what are they? Now, then I can actually show you, okay, here's five typefaces. Mm. If this clearly is too clinical, clinical is not one of our attributes. Um, this one is historical and it does, that is one of our attributes. Um, this one is too contemporary and that's what we're trying, you know. So then at least the client has rational reasons and you as a designer actually are making rational choices, not just like what's the groovy typeface du jour. It's, it's like, well, this is something we are trying to communicate. And I mean, I have had instances where I've shown an identity to clients and they've said, oh, I don't like it. And he said, okay, we'll explain because these are the attributes that we worked on. Which one does it not hit? And they'll look at it and say, well, it does hit all of them actually. Um, and like, okay, well, why don't you like, is there still something inherently you just they're responding to? Because maybe there is something there. Mm -hmm. Like if you're not responding and it's your company, mm -hmm. is there something you're not telling me? Like, is there an attribute we have not discovered yet? Right. And do they need to be adjusted? Um, or, you know, in that instance, the client did look at all of them and in the end said, well, my husband didn't like that blue. And I'm like, well, does that invalidate any of these? No, it doesn't. That's the right choice. That it became more of a logical, rational choice, not a, yeah. well, I took it home and it looked bad in the light. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. So how can one tell whether the designer is good or not? I mean, how, how would you know whether you've got a designer who's talented or not? Talented? Thinking it through. The, you know, the first thing is, you know what you respond to, right? Like you are going to have a specific set of, of ideas that you look at and say, gee, I like that, or I don't like that. And that's important. You know, in, designers are not interchangeable cogs. They are um, people with life experiences and that experience creates a vision that is in their work, like it or not, they're going to have a vision of some sort. Mm -hmm. Finding someone that's like-minded is really important that you're like, yeah, that, that person shares my sensibilities. Like, mm -hmm. like, like I'd like to think my, my sensibilities tend to be towards, I like things honest and straightforward. Mm -hmm. I like things to be legible and understandable. Someone who wants something avant-garde and oblique will hopefully never come to me. They're just, they'll just be unhappy. Um, so finding someone who, yeah, that I share that, that I like their stuff. And then if they're asking you the right questions, like, you know, the, the time to run for the door is when someone is like immediately sitting with you and you're trying to explain your company and or your organization. And they're like, it could be a tree. And mm -hmm. like, okay, you don't even know who I'm talking to yet. Yeah. Like you need to ask me like, what am I about? Where am I trying to go? Why am I unique? Who's my competition? Um, it's a great opportunity for most people to actually really think about their own organization or company and, and separate it because we're always in so much of a process of doing business. We don't have time to stop and think, what does make me unique? Yeah. Like, why am I better than Betty down the street? You know, what, is, what do I make? What's my product? better or different. 
and how can I how can I you know work on that yeah and then how do you choose the color apart Again, from being I, different to compare well color I mean Shereen that is such a loaded question <laughs> <laughs> I would love to say in a perfect world, we go to the attributes and people are like, yes, this, 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 that, that equals red, you know, or that equals orange or whatever it is. Color is so subjective. Like for all I know, you were locked in an orange closet as a child and you're never going to accept orange no matter what. Mm -hmm. There's just, you know, so in some ways, that's where as a designer, you have to be a little flexible. And you can, you can provide people with, here's the rational reasons, here's the competition, Here's all the logic, and that may still fail. Someone may still say, I absolutely hate orange. And in that case, okay, we can work with that. Let's move on to the next one. Yeah. Um, it's, I, I, had, I had one client and he insisted his identity had to be the color of, his, he, green was the choice in the end. It made perfect sense for the brand, um, but he wanted it to be the color of his Jaguar. And, and I was like, okay, so you have a green Jaguar. And I actually got the paint chips from that year mm -hmm. and did it. And he's like, that's not my green. I'm like, okay, help. You know, that is exactly paint color. And it, and it was like, well, no, it doesn't look like that. And of course he's seeing it in a different light. So in his mind, there was a different green entirely. And it was like paramount that he get that green. And, you know, in the end it was like, here's a swatch book. You tell me which green is your green. Yeah. So doesn't it signify something, the choice of color? I mean, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. understanding what colors mean culturally is, is, I don't, I, it's part of your job as a designer. I need to know I'm working in a Western country and white probably means purity or, you know, um, cleanliness. Or if I'm working in an Asian company country, it might mean death. You know, I need to be aware of those yeah differences um i had a friend who was working on japan airlines and she said um at one point they made a presentation of the latest identity and everyone in the room stood up and left angrily and later on someone said that's a chinese red that's not the japanese red and it was so understanding culturally what 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 are these associations what yeah. do they mean what do they have to that is it's important it's, you know, we respond to color, you know, in different ways. And I mean, one of the things I mentioned in, in my last book, of course, is that people respond to bright, happy colors because they're easy to understand and easy to articulate. And typically they meant good things that we wouldn't die from eating that bad brown thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it doesn't look like rotten meat. It's probably good. Um, but but there are times when something more complex does make better sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think a Land Rover in bright red is, I'm sure someone might like that, but it seems, you know, rather to be going against the brand, where something like a more complex avocado green is probably a better choice. That I would expect that. It would feel more like, oh, I could take that on safari. It would be perfect. Great. So semiotics, is, is that taught in your um, college? It is. I don't know if anyone pays attention, frankly. But it's, yeah. it's, you hope it is. And, and as, I, as I often tell people, it may not seem like they're getting it right now, but five years out, they will. Like, it's like we're not training them for their first job. We're training them for their second and third yeah. um, because so much they're just being 
fire hose with so much information, mm -hmm. but just getting them to understand, like, especially with color. If I call that avocado, someone is invariably going to say, oh, no, 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 no. I hate that color. If I call it dark olive green, they're like, oh, I love that. You know, so it's just those strange associations that that can drive something. And and definitely, you know, just in terms of language semiotics. Yes, they that's that's critical. Like, what are what are the words you're using to describe something? Mm -hmm. uh, but also visual semiotics, like what? What what's the subtext here? What do you you know you, you you've made this identity? Is there a subtext here like that that maybe you're not aware of? And and then that's I think where a little bit we start tipping into the world of responsibility, um, of designers' responsibility culturally. That what we make is public. What we produce goes out there and and has a public voice. Knowing we're no, we're doing no harm is a really good thing to know. Mm. Right. So what are some challenges facing designers at the moment? You know, the, the funny thing is I was, I was talking to someone about this. You have such good questions. I, I have to say, um, I was talking to someone last week about this. One of my one of my students who graduated about five years ago went has gone to work for one of the big tech companies and he came back for a visit and we had lunch and he was explaining this project he was working on, which was a branding software. So basically, you would tell the software, this is the name of my company, here's the thing, my values, what it's about, here's my competition, um, and it would generate a logo for you, and it would generate all the materials and a standards manual. So no human being would have to be involved at all. It would be completely artificial intelligence making all the choices for you. And he showed me some examples, and I'm like, those are absolutely good examples. That is the right solution. The thing that it missed, though, was that sometimes the wrong solution is the right solution, mm -hmm. that it could only give you what you put into it. So it so that the software couldn't come back and say, I think your audience is wrong. Mm -hmm. like, you know, it, it just it just spat back what it was given. And so I think the challenge now for designers is to not just mechanically go through the process, but to really stop and ask those hard questions. Is that the right audience? You know, are they, is your, like I had a client who the audience kept aging up, like one year, you know, for five years, it was 45 to 55, then 55 to 65. Like your, if your audience is dying, let's just face it. Like maybe we need to transition to a younger audience. So I think it's the designer's job really to ask those hard questions that no one really wants to be asked. Mm -hmm. Like, is that the right product that you're making? Mm. Um, I mean, a great example of, of that that I give to to our graduate students is there's an, an amazing case study from Harvard, um, Marketing Myopia. And Marketing Myopia talked about the railroad industry in the 1800s, and the railroad industry was king. You know, like, obviously, you know, the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, they you know, made their fortune. Um, by the 1930s, they were basically out of business mm. because air travel had taken over. Now if the railroad companies had not defined themselves as railroad companies but as travel or transportation companies they could have made that transition yeah but they were so singularly focused mm -hmm. so often i think it's our job as a designer to say okay are you more than what you say you are mm -hmm. let's really dig into this and and get to the bigger picture and, mm -hmm. and solve that and 
artificial intelligence can't do that. It's not, you know, that's of now. I mean, until it becomes sentient, I imagine. But, um, you know, that, yeah. so I think that's our biggest challenge is not knowing how to make things lovely, but how to ask the right questions and how to challenge when, when, when needs to be challenged. Yeah. Well, I think also designers could differentiate themselves by properly understanding intellectual property because, you know, I've got a course that I'm teaching at the moment and I'm getting some really positive feedback from people mm -hmm. who were just not aware how deeply IP impacts branding. It's not mm -hmm. just are we infringing or not, you know, it's, you know, what can be protected as a differentiator. For example, if you've got a patent, you have protection for your differentiation for a while, but if mm -hmm. you have to use your distinctiveness, you know, your name, colors, whatever, to, to become known by them during that period while you've got that protection. Mm -hmm. A lot of um, companies that have patents make the mistake of just using a name like Windsurfer for their, mm -hmm. instead of giving themselves a brand name as well, as well as a description of that thing. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's, I think if a designer understood all this when they're helping such a company to create the brand, then they, they'd be different to a lot of other designers who don't take account of the IP dimension, maybe. It's so critical. It's just such a big part of it. And understanding, am I making forms that are copyrightable? Am I not? Are they not? Um, if they're not, what else can I do? What other levels of protection can I put? Because it's, at least in the United States, and I'm sure it's based on British law also, is there's just levels of protection. You know, that's yeah. like, yeah, I made it. I own the copyright to it now. Do I register it as a trademark? Is it, you know, what are the different levels? And you need a really good IP attorney to navigate that. It is not mm. something for the faint of heart. Well, I, I think you don't necessarily just need an IP attorney. You need to know what you're creating when you're creating it. Um, and then, yes, you get an IP attorney. Like what you said, you know, description isn't what you're trying to do when you're naming something. But mm -hmm. so many um, branding people actually go for description yeah. rather than naming something. Naming it. And, and the funny thing is, too, is like marketing. that the SEO, the search engine optimization value of something unique is so much better yeah. than windsurfing company, which will bring up a thousand. But if I've got a very specific, if I've got, you know, um, Adam's windsurfing company, I've got a better chance of exactly. searching and optimization moving that forward. Yeah. And I mean, we, yeah, we hammer that know, even though. on web pages, name every page individually yeah. and specifically. Yeah. Um, it's so yeah, important. Well, you know that, but so many designers don't uh, because they come, I, they come and ask me, can I protect this? And it's just, just a very blatant description. I think, no, you can't protect it. <laughs> But the fact that they even ask makes me think you need training in, in to understand yeah. what is ownable as a name, you know. Yeah, what's ownable and what's not. And they're they're just understanding like, well, it's important to to create something proprietary. Yeah. There's that's that's what you're being paid for, something that's yeah. that client can then own it. And some things like we discussed are maybe not as proprietary as others, but there's ways of 
working on that to make it even more so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even if it's those slight things that we talked about, like, okay, I'm making some modifications to that letter form mm. so that it stands out, like the tail on the R. Okay, that's gonna, that's memorable. That's gonna be a little different. Mm. And you no, know, granted, if push comes to shove, if I put that in front of a judge, they'd say, no, absolutely, I don't see any difference at all. Mm. But, you know, at least you're starting to make that attempt that along with the rest of the identity system, it, it starts becoming unique. Yeah, great. Well, thank you very much. Um, before we stop, can I just ask, are there some resources like books mm -hmm. or conferences or podcasts that you'd recommend to delve more into this topic that you spoke about today? The Design Management Institute is uh -huh. a great organization that deals with a lot of these more um, um, critical issues as opposed to just form making. Mm -hmm. um, DMI, they do a great job. Um, AIGA, American Institute of Graphic Arts, um, also is has a really good arm that deals with the, the business side of, of um, this and intellectual property. Um, the British Design and um, British DNAD is fantastic at um, the same thing as an organization at understanding um, that it's not just about making things look a certain way, but understanding how do we protect things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all of these different organizations, basically, you know, many of them were formed at the beginning of the 19th century when, when it was sort of a copyright festival, a free for all of things being imitated and copied as a way to really say, look, we need to set some standards. Yeah. So I think they're, they're fantastic. Um, uh, one of my good friends, Debbie Millman is an amazing writer. And I always think any of Debbie's books are, are totally worth, worth um, digging into. Your own book, of course. Oh, in my book. Thank you. Well, yes. You've got a follow up <laughs> coming. <laughs> yeah. And, and I do actually have a course on LinkedIn learning on branding and okay. Yeah, and and so that's that one's I, that that one. Strangely enough, it's it's you know on LinkedIn Learning, we it's like a rating system. Like you have different courses, and for a long time, a few of the courses were always just game, bang, doing gangbusters. And lately, that the branding one's just gone nuts. And hmm. I assume there's a lot of interest out there, and I'm hoping people are actually getting the not how do I make this pretty, but how do I ask the the real questions and create something that's unique. Yeah. Oh, I'll put that in the show notes. And how can people contact you or learn from you? Where's the best place for them to look out for you? Um, you can find my own website. Um, um, www.seanadams.design mm -hmm. is uh, a good place to go. Um, artcenter.edu is another place where you can find me. Um, and Amazon, of course. I have a, you know, I think I have something like eight books at this point. So they're still all in print and um wow. you know i do like that the one that we talked about i think that that would be really relevant is the designer's dictionary of color and that one i really did try to tackle okay what are some of the emotional issues connected with color and, and the cultural issues and how do we work with those oh okay we'll write it in the show notes great yeah thank, well, thank you. you very much indeed sure my pleasure and, and someday i i hope to I hope to visit i like i told you in my email it's one of my places i've always wanted to go so um you're, you're oh, lucky well, to live there. Look me up if you do come. I will. I'll come to Hastings to do my historical tour and come and see you too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. My Bye. pleasure. Thank you, Shireen. Thank you.